as we hit the spring season, we're starting to see the best and worst things emerge. I've seen all sorts of bugs starting to creep into our basement, um, but al along with all of those creepy creatures, there are beautiful insects that emerge from, from the winter sleep. And I think one of the insects that I enjoy observing the most over the spring and summer are butterflies. They are a mystery to me. They are creepy and crawly and sometimes fuzzy, hairy caterpillars. And, and then they create this cocoon. And about a week later, I think that's correct, they, they emerge as beautiful butterflies. And, and they're mysterious. They have this dust on their wings and they float here and there. And, and they have this evil twin, the moth, that does something similar. But, but perhaps the most amazing thing is the transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And, and I think that there's a lot of spiritual reflection that can come from observing these insects. But un, unlike caterpillars that transform into butterflies, our experience of transformation has very little to do with us. Caterpillars eat all of the right things. They do all of the right things. They rest at the right time, and, and they break free of that cocoon, and they dry out in the right way, and, and they do all the work. But, but our transformation is a little bit different. Our transformation has about nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul gives us a reflection on our transformation that is far more glorious and awe-inspiring than the transformation of the most beautiful butterfly from the most ugly caterpillar. Those, those things are beautiful and marvelous, but as we reflect on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want you to be able to see the transformation that God does in every single one of our lives as he moves us from dead and hopeless to alive as new creatures in Jesus Christ. So turn, if you would then, to Ephesians 2. We'll begin by reading this text, and then we'll reflect on three realities. We'll reflect on our natural death in sin, on the gracious divine intervention of God, and then finally on the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. What a marvelous description of our transformation in Jesus Christ. Let's reflect on this first by recognizing our transition from death to life that begins with the reality of our death in sin by nature. This is who we are by nature. We're, we're born this way. We are born sinners. Paul says that you're dead in your trespasses and sin. Before we can reflect on this further, I need to just point out something that Paul is trying to do on on a larger level, and that is that he's trying to address both Jews and Gentiles who are historically divided, with Jews identifying themselves as having some level of preferential treatment from God or perhaps some advanced standing in God. And in this text where Paul addresses you, he's speaking to Gentiles, and when he uses the word we, he's talking about us Jews. And, and his point here is that no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, you are dead in sin. And that's true for Jews and Gentiles. Most of us are probably Gentiles. And so we need to say, wh- whoever I am, I am dead in sin. There's nothing special about me. There's no special value or status that I have that makes it so that I'm not dead in sin. That's who I am. So you're dead in your trespasses. That's the violations of God's laws and standards and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. We're we're born into this world as sinners. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Now this, this... identity of the ruler of the power of the air is variously understood. Paul's readers probably understood this to be a reference to Zeus or some other Greco-Roman deity, but underlying it all as Jew and Gentile are disobedient to God, it's usually in favor of worship of some false god, ultimately empowered in a satanic way. And so we can say that from the very beginning, we're born doing what the devil wants us to do. That, that's who we are. It's not a very pretty picture of who we are, but it's reality and we have to square with this. And then Paul addresses the Jews. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. That is that we just did whatever we wanted, not what God wanted. And we were by nature children under, the, under wrath as others were also. That is to say, our sin brings upon us the wrath of God. Now, we might look at this description and try to say, I'm not that bad. You're, you're saying I'm dead in sin. That's a nice picture, but I'm more just like sick or diseased in sin. I just have this little problem. And if I just, if I just do the right things, if I get on the right spiritual diet, I'm going to be able to fix this. Well, that's not the image that God gives us. He gives us an image, which is sort of gross. And I didn't put a picture. I'm not putting a picture on the screen of it. I, I looked up a couple and thought that is disgusting. The image is of, of the walking dead. 
You're dead in trespasses and you're living among them. You're walking in your sin. You are a dead, rotting corpse doing what dead, rotting corpses do, which is just to zombie walk across the planet. There's, there's nothing good in you and there's nothing you can do to bring life back to yourself because you're dead. If, if we do not recognize this, we are not seeing reality. And, and I know that every one of us can make a list of all the good things we do that would make us better than the other dead zombies out there. But, but the reality is you're, you're just like them and, and just like me and I'm just like you and we're dead in sin. That, and if that's not bad enough, it, it's bad enough to be a zombie, but zombies get what zombies have coming for them, which, which is to be crushed. To, to be demolished, to be isolated. I haven't watched very many zombie thrillers in my day, but I think the goal is to wipe out the zombies. <laughs> well, as, as we have this picture of being dead in sin, we also have the picture that we're children under the wrath of God. Our sin kills us, but it also puts us into a position of receiving God's wrath and judgment. And there is no hope for life or avoiding wrath in ourselves. Everything about us just inches us closer to God's wrath in every step that we take. God's wrath then promises that in the end, if you keep living in sin, there's nothing good that's going to happen to you. This is a lamentable state and it is not popular to talk about in our day that God's wrath is, is hanging over you, ready to drop on you in an act of judgment. But I think we need to see it that way because that's the way God gives us to look at it. Our sin makes us culpable of, for, for what we do and it puts us in the aim of God's judgment. We resist this until we look at someone else who we think deserves God's wrath. I, I think we can look at the news, and we had a recent illustration of this with, with a trial of the police officer in Minneapolis where there was rejoicing over a, a sentence and in, in rejoicing over a, a higher weighted sentence by the judge. And there was something that felt right about that, where, where it, there was a sense that justice was being accomplished. Well, that is just a small picture. If you watch videos of people dancing in the streets in Minneapolis of justice being served in a particular way, whether or not you agree that full justice was served on either side of the spectrum, that gives us an insight to say that there's something within us that knows that justice is needed, that, that wrongdoing needs to be punished. That, and, and that applies to us as well. It's easy to apply it to others and, and then to say, God, pour out your wrath on them, but, but I'm just good enough that I don't deserve your wrath. But we all, regardless of how we look at ourselves, deserve God's wrath. And in fact, there's nothing stopping God's wrath rolling out on us. But notice that Paul says that you previously walked in this. And, and this cues us to, to remember that despite the weight of our sin and the gravity of God's judgment, that something has been done, but nothing that we could do. 
And so he carries on in that glorious phrase to point us to God's gracious divine intervention where he says, but God. Have there ever been more hope-giving words than that? But God, you were dead in sin with no hope for life, but God. You, you were standing in the sights of God's judgment, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love that he had for us. So notice that it's not, but you were clever, or, but, but, but you got a good job and made a lot of money and got yourself a nice home and started doing all the right things and hanging out with the right people. Or, but you were born into a privileged family. No, you were born into a family as a child under God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive with Christ, although we were dead in our trespasses. That is the message of the gospel. That God, your creator, who you rebel against every single day, was rich in mercy because of his love. Not because of anything in you. Not because of anything in me. The result is that you are saved by grace. When we hear the word mercy, we, we might have this idea of a, a, a judgment sentence that's been revoked. There was an act of mercy. There was punishment owed to somebody who was deserving of that punishment, and that punishment was removed. And, and that's the picture that is here. We were children in, in God's wrath, under God's wrath, but God mercifully removed that sentence from us, but then it's, it's capped by the statement, you were saved by grace. Sometimes we conceive of grace as being um, a reception of favor or kindness that we don't deserve. Almost as if we view ourselves as sort of neutral. There's nothing about us that would push that grace away, uh, but we don't necessarily deserve it either. So God looks at us as neutral people and decides to give us a nice favor. The picture that Paul gives us is that we're not neutral creatures at all. And so instead of grace being God's favor, even though we don't deserve it, it's, it's God's favor, even though we deserve the opposite of it. It's the corollary to mercy where wrath is removed and pardon is given, but not just pardon, but blessing and life in Christ. We have to remember, though, that God always acts in Jesus Christ in his relationship to us. Over and over and over throughout Ephesians, you'll see this phrase, in Christ, over and over. And it's only by virtue of our connection to Christ that we receive God's love and mercy and grace. So it's no surprise that the picture of God's grace poured out on us is intimately connected to God's working in Jesus Christ that we read about at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter one, we, we saw the exercise of God's power in Christ is God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hands in the heavens. Well, what is said of us is what is said of Christ. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. 
Note the past tense nature of these actions. The work of Christ accomplished something in a way that it's real for us now. We already are raised up and we're already seated with God in the heavenly places. And this is really hard for us to understand because sometimes we think of our salvation in terms of a purely at death or end time sort of reality. But Paul is telling us that you're already raised with Christ. You're already at home in heaven with God. You are already ruling with Jesus. Now, we recognize from the other texts of scriptures that there's more to come, that this is sort of an already and not yet scenario. You're already raised from the dead because you were dead in your sins. And, and that raising from the dead will come to a fullness when your physical body is raised from the dead as well. That, that's how this works. But we need to recognize that our salvation is real now. It, it's not a pie in the sky, when I die sort of reality, your salvation changes you right now. That gives us hope because it means that I don't have to keep striving. I don't have to keep trying to work to do this myself because God raised me from the dead already. He did this so that in the coming ages, this is where the not yet comes into play, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's, it's almost like he's going to set us up as trophies in, in the heavenly high school hallway where, where all the powers of this earth walk down and see that God's the champion. We're trophies of his grace in a real way. And, and it's not about us, it's about him. Our salvation is about God. It wouldn't happen without his divine intervention. So as we move from death to life, we, we recognize that we were dead in sin by nature. That's changed only by God's divine intervention. But the result of his divine intervention is that we're alive in Christ by grace. So he gives us these words, repeating in essence what he's already said, but expanding on it. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Paul makes clear that our salvation is a gift from God. It's a, it's a gift of grace. And so as we look at this, we recognize our whole salvation is from God by grace. We can't conjure up grace. We're not the source of grace. It's from God. That's the active agent in our salvation. But notice that it's, he says that our salvation is through faith. It's by grace through faith. There, there is a response that we have, which is to believe the gospel to orient ourselves in faithfulness to Christ. And so the picture that I think is helpful here is, is that faith is kind of like a needle in syringe and grace is, is the stuff in there that's being injected into us. The, the grace doesn't get imparted apart from faith, but you need faith as an external reality that's given to you so grace can be imparted to you. 
such that both grace and faith are gifts from God that we would never have on our own. It's a gift. So we ought to, I think, attribute, well, I know, attribute our salvation to God and God alone. We should never say that there was something about me that made me become a Christian. And in, in this text highlights that. And as you start to think back on siblings or roommates and you start to ask, well, how, how come I'm a Christian now and they're not? Well, you're never going to find anything in yourself that, that would make this be the case. It's only by the grace and faith that you've received as a gift from God. So we note that our salvation is not from works. I think when we hear this, we automatically think of Roman Catholics and say, well, our salvation is, our belief in salvation is different than theirs. And that's, that's right. And, and some of you have had experience in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and that's true, but it's not precisely what Paul was targeting in the moment here. The, the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist. Instead, he's speaking to a wide-ranging group of Jews and Gentiles, of rich and poor and slaves and masters. And I think this wide-ranging term of works would have hit each one of them in a different way. So I want to chase this down for a while. And, and you need to identify where would I be tempted to, to hear it wrongly and where do I need to hear it rightly? For those who were part of the old covenant, I think they could have heard this and, and had a way of thinking to be corrected, which is if, if I exercise obedience to all of the laws of the old covenant, I am going to, to receive salvation because of what I'm doing. And I think what Paul is telling them is, look, you can keep the old covenant in whatever additions you add all the live long day, but nothing's going to happen because you're dead in sin. So your salvation is not by works. I think as Gentiles would hear this, they would start to think of works in terms of a social positioning or wealth or something like that. And, and there would be this idea that perhaps the more privileged elites were in a better position to receive salvation than, than the poor. And, you know, so, so the poor, the slaves would hear this and say something like, well, maybe, maybe I need to advance my, my social standing in order to be able to work my way up to connect to this God. Or, or maybe the rich were saying, we're already there and we deserve this. Well, Paul's word to them is there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can be to earn your salvation or to have a more privileged reception of it. There's, there's nothing about you or anything you could ever do to receive the salvation. So as, as you hear this, I, I think it's good to start to recognize where you might start to look at yourself as deserving of salvation, either because you grew up in a good Christian family or on the opposite side, because you lived a, a lifestyle of rebellion against God and you did something to turn yourself around. Recognize that your salvation has very little, if anything, to do with you other than your response to God's gifts of grace and faith. What's the result then of this new life that we have in Christ? It's that we are now new creatures. We, we hear of the new creation that is to come when Christ returns, but there's been an inbreaking of that new creation, and that inbreaking is you. You 
are a new creature. The old is passing away. You are the new that's being brought in because you're a work of God. So where you could not work for your salvation, you become a work of God, prepared to do good works in Christ Jesus. Paul's wordplay here is incredibly clever. You, you can't work for it. Jesus did a work and now you're his workmanship so that you'll go on to do good works. So your new creation life is one which radically transforms you from living according to your sinful passions to living according to the good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In other words, life as a Christian is non-negotiable for Christians because you're now a Christian. You're no longer a zombie dead in sin. You're a live, living human, the new humanity that is in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that some object to this idea that good works in a changed life are a necessary part of salvation. That sounds a little bit too much like earning our salvation. I, I want to just pause and say that there are churches and Christians who subtly teach a way of being in this world that communicates you need to earn God's favor and grace for your salvation or your sanctification. And that's not true. And, and so if you've heard that, if you've heard for me to be truly saved, I, I need to, you know, cut my hair at a certain length or wear a certain style of clothes or something like that. If, and, and that's how I'm going to become a, a Christian. If you've heard that, it, it might just be a misunderstanding, but, but whatever it is, that's wrong. And that's not what I'm trying to say here. The, the good works have nothing to do with earning God's favor. It's in response to God's favor. And it's because he's given us a new nature. You know, so um, to go back to our zombie illustration, zombies are going to zombie. Christians are going to Christian. You have a new impulse in you and in the reality is, though, that we still have sin that's being put to death in us. And so it doesn't always come as naturally as we feel like it should come. We, we still have these habits and inclinations towards sin. And that's where we look to the future resurrection where we'll be raised forever. However, you need to pursue good works. And that is not legalism. So I want to give you two pieces that might help you remember that it's not legalism to strive hard to work out your salvation. First, um, these good works are described as that which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This means that God is fundamentally the acting agent in the good works that you do. So you can do truly good works, but it's God who, who animates you to be able to do the good works. And not only that, he's prepared them ahead of time. This reminds us of the language of Ephesians 1, where he says that you've been called before the foundation of the world so that you'd be presented holy and blameless in him. So these good works have to do with personal holiness, but it's not the kind you can conjure up, but it is the kind that you must pursue by the grace and energized working of God. So, so if that helps, it should. God is the one at work in you. But then second, I think that we need to reevaluate the way that we hear the word gift. In, in our society, 
the ideal gift is one that comes with no strings attached. In, in fact, a, a gift from someone you know is almost like, I don't want that from you because I feel like I owe you something. So I want a gift like winning the lottery or I want a gift, you know, like from a drawing because then I don't owe anything because of it. Well, the ideal gift in the ancient world was the kind of gift that came with strings attached. It was a relationship forming thing. So you give gifts and we do this too. And that's the kind of gift giving we need to lean into. We give gifts to encourage relationship and reciprocity, right? So, so I give a gift and, and hopefully that person is going to continue in the relationship with me. Well, this is a kind of gift that God gives us in our salvation. It's not the kind of gift that says, hey, take this fire insurance and run with it. And I don't care if I ever talk to you again. That's not how God looks at us because he values us and he's adopted us and made us his children. So when we think about salvation as a gift, it's not made null by working afterwards. It's not made void and it's not, you know, diminished at all as a gift because we now pursue with greater intensity a relationship with God. That is the way gifts work and especially within this covenantal context where relationship is prime. So how do we respond to this text? First, I would suggest that we need to respond by declaring the gospel of our salvation. That is to say, instead of looking at the world and people who do us wrong or have ideas that are anti-God and, and against Christianity and responding in anger or fear, we ought to respond by declaring the gospel because we were no more dead in sin than, than anyone we encounter. And God has a quickening, life-giving work that, that is true for them as it was true for you. So as you hear of sins in the news and of cultural shifts, don't respond in fear or anger. Respond by more happily and joyfully declaring what God has done in your life. And, and we get to hear that from a couple of individuals who are joining the church today. And, and as you heard that last week and you hear it this week, take that as a confirming word from God that he is indeed working in people's lives to raise them from the dead. So declare the gospel of salvation. Second, credit God for your salvation. Credit God for your salvation and the salvation of all who come to him. That is a work of God. And, and we should not try to take credit for it. And, and that means that we don't operate in this world in self-righteousness, as if, if we're better than others because we've done something to become better than others. God has given us life. So credit God for your salvation. Third, display your salvation through good works. Pursue personal holiness. Care about growing in purity before God. Strive after this. Rope people into your lives who will help keep you accountable to keep your anger and, and other sins in check, who, who will help you recover from these inclinations and addictions to sin. Bring people into that and chase after that hard because God is animating you to do that. Display your salvation through good works and personal holiness and display your salvation through good works as you love and forgive and relate to others in this assembly and other places. 
And if you need some good ideas on good works to pursue or what that should look like, let me recommend that you turn to Ephesians 4 and read through the rest of the book because Paul is going to lay it all out there. Right, right now, he wants you to reflect on the kindness and mercy of God because that's a better motivator than a list of things to do. Um, but reflect on that and then go do things. Work out your salvation. Be patient as you wait for the final day. So this guy is what you might feel like as, as we return to our butterfly transformation phase. You might feel like, I know I'm a Christian. God is working in me. He's changing me. I'm moving from caterpillar to butterfly, but I've got wings that are smaller than my head. That, I think that's how most of us feel every single day. We, we know something happened, but, but we can't see it, and, and we're not actually flying. We're, we're still crawling around. And uh, take that as, as a reminder. Be patient. God is continuing to work in you, and if, if you want to see a, a great illustration worked out here, watch A Bug's Life this afternoon, because there are moments where this guy's friends pick him up, and, and they're flying, and he's yelling out, I'm flying, even though he's not doing anything. And it's a good reminder that we need the community of faith as we continue to develop in our walk with the Lord. So, so encourage each other to be patient. Be patient with one another grab onto, a couple of you grab onto someone who's struggling and help them fly. Allow them to see where God's kindness has been in their life. And, and when you're really feeling like God has abandoned you and, and he's not changing you anymore, grab a hold of someone else and, and find encouragement there because they're going to see that God has been working in you in ways that you can't. And, and you'll be able to mutually encourage them as well. So declare the message of salvation to others. Praise God, live out your salvation and be patient as we await the final day.